Broadsheet Radio. Welcome to another episode of Shared History. Zoom, zoom. <laughs> because we are getting on this magic school bus and we are zooming through some history. We are zooming into 2022, right? That's what year it is. That's Well, that's the future. Well, but we're in the past, Cass. Exactly. This is me on December 1st, 2021, pretending to be excited that it's 2022. Give me an Oscar, an Academy Award for me, please. <laughs> they like you. They really like you. I'm a star. Natalie, how was your, how was your Christmas? <laughs> oh, Make up a story for me. Oh, man. It was wild. There were, there was a food fight. Um, somebody broke somebody else's fancy electronic. There were fisticuffs. It was... Ooh, that's a regular, uh, Christmas vacation on your end. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, just exactly what you'd expect at, a at my, at my family's household. Just... Absolutely. I got, um, I was gifted one million dollars, fingers crossed, um, and, you know, a brand new car and a jet so that I can just fly to see Natalie whenever I want. Uh, you know, just like the drive is a really tedious one from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm really glad that you have that jet. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been super nice. We see each other all the time now. It's, <laughs> it's only a week into the new year and I'm already maybe sick of cast just dropping by. Yeah. So it makes this Zoom thing really, really work out for us. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps our love alive. I'm just kidding, Cass. There's always room for you in my heart and in my home. <laughs> I still don't have a guest room. You know what? It's it's. I'm pretending it's a month from now. I'm going to pretend that I have access to my guest room, which is impossible with the amount of work that needs to be done in my home from a construction project. Do you still have a basement? Or do you have a basement yet? Uh, oh boy, do I have a basement now manifesting this and it's, <laughs> and it's not, not a, not humanly oh, wow. I get stressed hearing about your construction woes and I'm like 300 miles away. Uh, that's because we share, uh, we have, you know, it's a twin thing. It's an evil twin thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm so excited to be back in a new year, the second half of season Fucking five. That's wild to me. That's crazy. Here's some history for you. Episode 73? Sounds right. Sounds about right. So let's zoom zoom right to it. Oh, also, hey. I, I got a new toy and I just need to, I just need to. <laughs> Y'all, uh. Shout out to Broadsheet Radio and uh, Natalie's new podcasting room. And we are up in our ante. We got soundboards. I don't know what they do, but they've got 
dials that slide and that to me is what it's what fancy is the important thing is so we love we love dj rip dj rip we miss dj rip uh and we miss recording in person with dj rip so that we could have said that he was on the ones and twos now i'm on the ones and twos today and it's it's intimidating you're dj nat no i mean we can't we can't replace dj rip Oh, no, no, no. We just have, you're just on the ones and twos now. That's true. I, I Yeah. But like, he's the number one and I'm the number two. Let's zoom, zoom into some history. I think Let's I'm do going it. first. You're going uh, first, Nat. What do you, oh, hold on. Do you have a, in this new year, do you have a new discovery for us? I, I, you know what? I'm glad you asked. I do. It's a thing. So you've probably heard Cass say that I, I love a good spreadsheet. Um, I love some data hate math love data i like when things are boiled down for me to easily understand and i recently learned of uh something called story graph oh tell me more do you use goodreads at all to like you know i do you use goodreads at all to check your reading or check books you want to read i do yes okay love goodreads still use goodreads uh, it syncs. I like that it syncs to my Kindle and that I don't have to remember to tell it that I read something unless I read Hashtag it. sponsor. However, <laughs> however, I also use Storygraph uh, because Storygraph, okay, if you, it takes what you read and it, it puts it, um, it makes all these pretty pie graphs. And pie Hold graphs. on, Natalie, I need you to breathe. I need you to so breathe. by the data. <laughs> What are these pie graphs? So like you, okay, you can, you can import every, like export everything you've ever read according to Goodreads and like those records and you can put it and put it into Storygraph. But then at that point you have to remember to update both, which I do because I'm, um, ridiculous. Uh, but it'll like, yeah. give you, it'll give you like, um, graphs of like your reading for that year. And so it'll be like based on, uh, and it's a little bit more like community, um, sourced so like when i finish a book it'll be like hey these are the descriptors that we have for this book are these accurate and then you can be like yeah but i would also say that this book is suspenseful and then it'll add suspenseful and so then you can Ooh. Like, graph at the end that'll like it's a beautiful pie chart that kind of shows you the percentage of what you read that year for example that fits all these different genres and it'll show you like kind of if you update it regularly and actually like tell it when you read a book it'll be like oh you read like this many pages in this month and this many blah 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 and it'll be like on average you read books that are like fast paced slower paced medium paced there's all these different things i think that the um the genre side of it is really interesting just because like books can fit multiple genres and mm -hmm. graph lets that happen and so it'll be like, wow, Natalie, you read a lot of uh, sci-fi this year. And then you so it's like your Spotify. Yeah. Your year in Spotify. You can look at it as you go, and then you can compare. Yeah. Of you can look at of all time, mm -hmm. uh, of everything you've ever put into Storygraph, all of the years that, of data that they have in there, and then you can do um, you can compare from like year to year too. So I can look at it and be like, wow, I read more. I don't think it gets into the I wish that it would get into like demographics of the authors more. That's a one graph that's missing. Like I wish I could be like, yeah. oh, look at I read like 60% more female authors this year mm -hmm. than I did last year because that's usually yeah. one of my reading goals for the year because I'm weird. Not weird at all. Love it. Respect it. More of us. Let's do that. 
so so when you say community based because i know for goodreads it will it, it will recommend books to you so now based on your data does it give you different recommendations so i have read or at least direct you to yeah i have read that the recommendation algorithm or whatnot for storygraph is better than that of goodreads goodreads to me i like it as it almost like a social media reading so like yeah I'm friends with several other people who read a lot and we have semi similar mm -hmm. uh maybe taste in books and so for me it's more of nice to see that feed of like oh like my sister-in-law stephanie is reading this stephen king book yeah and then maybe the next time i see i'll be like how do you like that but like on on goodreads or amazon or wherever when you click something and then it says books similar like to this or people also like it's i and i mean i do that when i'm on netflix like similar too and i'm like that's not similar at all or like it is in a like a broad sense mm -hmm. but it sounds like you can like really hone and narrow down of like it's it's suspenseful drama romance thrill you know yeah I, which will give you even closer and more I accurate have not yet taken one of the book recommendations from it and i think they recently did an upgrade and i think some of the recommendations might now be behind like a membership wall the free i'm pretty sure the free version still gives you recommendations if yeah. you like look at articles that are out there that compare storygraph and goodreads mm -hmm. a lot of people say that the uh for that reason specifically that you just mentioned because of how much more community-based and granular the categorization gets that yeah. the recommendations on storygraph most people say are stronger yeah more likely to hit home versus you might get a recommendation on goodreads that's like sponsored or right or, or just as like a hot new uh hot new release um but also just very pretty colors and graphs Oh, I love pretty colors. I love data. Like, I really do. I love easy to read data. And I love data about myself. Like, that's the only reason I'm into astrology at all. It's because I'm like, oh my god, this is this is, you know, I'm learning about astrology, but also it's about me. <laughs> uh, my discovery, brand new, hot off the press, um, is this great website called Storygraph. Oh my that <laughs> and that is how discoveries are made and taken y'all <laughs> i just colonized your discovery oh, no. Woot. Oh, no. a lesson learned <laughs> you cannot trust cast you cannot um my hot discovery is the most enriching thing of my life dog parks it's a lot it's a lot more normal to go to when you have a dog so that's super nice and oh my gosh my sweet pup Rooney, we'll post pictures, is like five months old. She's gorgeous. And she just loves to play and romp. And all of these crazy dog parents who are like, we, we sit around and we w watch them play. And it's like we have our children there of like, oh, yes, little Timothy really shows an aptitude for uh, <laughs> sitting. And, and I've taught him a new trick and oh you know that's just how he plays and i got this new outfit for like the most asinine in-depth conversations about our dogs but also just like being surrounded by pups and watching them play and be happy oh my god it makes me so happy and i love it i love it 
I'm so happy that you're a dog mom now. Like, I, like I've really gone off the deep end. Like, it's a problem. Like, you, like I. <laughs> She's literally wearing a dog mom. Um, yeah, no, it's it's a problem. We're already figuring out what our second dog is going to be. Isn't Rooney, um, hasn't Rooney already, isn't she already on her second Iowa jersey? Yes. We got her when she was like, so, oh, wow. Ew, gross. No, Iowa State, Natalie. I Iowa State. Iowa. I just said Iowa no. because I couldn't remember. That's not, that's, that's, that's not okay. That's not okay. I'm. Iowa is a state though. Why can't I just say Iowa and it means either? Because in Iowa, it doesn't mean either. Hey, I apologize to the entire state of Iowa. Thank you. I just want to teach you the... I'm teaching you about history. It is the nuance of Iowa culture. Iowa's Big Ten. Iowa State's Big 12. Iowa's evil. Iowa State's not. Um, We got her when she was 10 weeks old, so she's a little bitty. And my friend Maddie was like, oh, she looks super cute in an Iowa State jersey. You know what? I'm going to buy it. Pulled up online and bought it right in front of us. And then one of the she grew out of it really quick and then because she's a little baby and so maddie's like oh it doesn't fit anymore don't worry i'll get the next size up bought it right there i was like you're the best auntie <laughs> so yeah that's um that's my life i'm crazy i only ever talk about my dog that one tiktok that's like how freaked out would your dog be if they scrolled through your phone and saw how many thousands of pictures <laughs> you have of them sleeping <laughs> I can't wait till Rooney and Boar can meet each other because we'll oh my be God. like, Boar's eight, I think now, and we'll be yeah. like, mm, hard pass. Rooney will be like, let's play, and Boar will play for a minute, and then be like, Rooney? finally leave me alone. I don't know if, if we could have them around each other. Rooney's only ever been around big dogs, and she, like, fight plays. Like, she wrestles. Boar she might... that with his, uh, with um my in-laws dog because they were puppies at the same time one year week younger than him and so they like full-on dinosaur fight and then boar will come up to us afterwards and have like scratches on him or and, like be bleeding from somewhere and we're yeah. completely unfazed and then takes a nap and somehow wolverine power heals during that nap and then is fine one time he literally ripped his dew claw off running around <gasps> the backyard chasing her and just like came up to us with this big dopey like <laughs> the dead of summer and just blood is pouring down his spindly little leg. And we're like, what did you do? <laughs> yeah, we need to, we need to stop now because otherwise we won't stop. And we gotta, we gotta zoom. Natalie, we gotta zoom, zoom to history. Yeah, zoom, zoom. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna zoom, zoom us uh, into history. Where am I Japan? When am I the 1600s? But also like all the way up through damn near the 1900s. Cause that's like, the peak time of what I'm going to talk about. So we're like, we span in centuries. I feel like that's also how Chinese history goes. You know, you can't just talk about one thing. You're like, we got to tell you about a few centuries before this. So you understand this or this thing I'm going to tell you did all this shit. China been around a long time. Well, this is Japan, but also been around a long, long time. Uh, and also it's the nature of what I'm, what I have brought for you today. Um, I, I said China because my topic's about China. I'm sorry, I got excited. We didn't even we had no we didn't even plan that. So, Cass, I have I have often told you that I think that the Silk Road is pretty groovy. 
uh, we had a, I think I remember hearing that maybe, maybe once or twice. We had a whole conversation about kind of like contextually why the Silk Road is groovy with our friend uh, and sponsor, Mike Draper from Raygun. And similarly, like the Silk Road was connecting all of East and West, basically. Yeah. Uh, from Like people associate it with China, but it was like... Yeah. All of Asia, like all of the Middle Eastern area, all of into like, like Eastern Europe. Yeah, like a little bit, like a little bit into like, like Northern Africa, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, a point being, like roads been roads gonna road roads on for a while. <laughs> uh, the Silk Road, like, is very difficult to talk about because it's like what like second century bce to 18th century ce so i'm taking you to the ce's and we're and and i'm taking you to kind of a specific period of time because that is when this other road that isn't the silk road that i want to talk about was probably like most traveled um but a new road a new road a new old road to talk about i'm gonna talk to you about the tokaido road Ooh, tell me more. So, like, the Takedo Road, like, we're talking, we're in pre-modern Japan. This is 303 miles, 488 kilometers for uh, fans abroad, of of road running mostly along the Pacific, so the eastern side, uh, on the eastern side of Japan, on, like, the eastern shoreline. Takedo roughly translates to eastern sea road. And it was, there were, there were like, five very um, prominent roads, basically, in uh, in this period in Japan that kind of like took you anywhere you needed to go. And the Takeda Road was the most important, uh, especially during the period that I'm talking about, which was the Edo period. And the Edo period is also known as the Tokugawa period. And that's because the Tokugawa shogunate was running the show during that time. So the shogun running the show. During this time, Japan was under the rule of the of of this shogunate. It was Imperial Japan. It was there were three hundred regional. Uh, I did not look up the pronunciation of this word because it was one of those things that I was like, "Oh, I've heard this in a movie before," and then now my brain won't say it. Uh, daimyo, daimyo, essentially feudal lords of Japan. Um, there were like three hundred in the country, and basically. The shogunate and them ran like ran everything, and the reason the road was so was probably so especially well trodden during those times was because, in those three hundred and three miles of it, it connected uh, Edo, which is uh, modern day Tokyo, to Kyoto and Western Honshu. So Kyoto was Japan's political capital. So it was kind of the former capital um, before this period because. Edo was the imperial city, and that's where the shogun were was, and they required um, the the lords, if you will, to make the trek to Edo like every two years. I imagine, since we're in kind of like a feudal system, I imagine it's like you come, you pay your respects to me, you yeah, pay me taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every other year, this road is like three hundred three miles of basically a parade of all of your local like governors and mm. uh almost ceremonial like yeah like royal family almost yeah uh like your local royalty your samurai traveled this road merchants 
all up and down this road because it connected these it connected like three major cities and uh during i mentioned the this period of time because during the shogunate during this uh shogunate the road is recorded as having a as having as being very smooth and well kept uh the roadbed averaged here's some very interesting stuff that everyone wants to know the road Ooh, data the roadbed averaged uh, like 18 feet, 5.5 meters uh, in width. So we can, we're a wide road. We can mm -hmm. be passing traffic. Um, it was a deep layer of crushed gravel overlaid with sand and then it, uh, paved with stone whenever it was like mountain slopes. And it was like, no potholes here. We keep this, this road nice because we did it right in the first place, which is, listen, I have a huge bone to pick with uh, Illinois infrastructure. I was going to say uh, roads, <laughs> namely Chicago. Because it's like if you built them, if we, if you invested the money to build them right the first in the first place, which you literally couldn't because transportation has evolved over centuries in America. Also, in the first place, it was wood and it burned. So you think, oh, second time around. Maybe we'll maybe let's just do the job right. There's still uh there's still areas in Chicago that you can there's like alleys and whatnot that are still like late eighteen hundreds um cobblestone from when the city was rebuilt the first time. Because like that's we weren't and also there used to be streetcars, like there are parts of Chicago that you'll be like, Wait, is there a streetcar running through here? No, there's just the rails are still there from from shit. Uh can I also say I love a good cobbled street. Oh hell yeah. Not if I'm wearing heels, but otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I haven't worn heels in in a very long time. Neither have I. I'm a giant, and everyone is smaller than me. <laughs> I actually wore heels at a wedding this past fall, and uh, the because I was a bridesmaid, so the guy I was walking down the aisle with, I was like, I might be hanging on to you. I have bad knees. You thought I was kidding, and then we were standing the whole time, and then on the way back down the aisle. I grab him. I'm leaning. I was like, I need to take my shoes off. He's like, ha okay. And then at the very end of the aisle, he's like, oh, you mean now? I got my shoes off. It's like, I can feel my ACLs. Natalie, there comes a time in every episode where I need to talk to you about Iowa. Wait, is this a new segment? No, it's an ad for our sponsor, Raygun, who I love for being a wonderful business and for providing me with a regular excuse to bring up Iowa. As if you needed one. Right. Raygun is the greatest store in the universe, hands down. They're headquartered in the greatest state in the universe. Okay, okay. They also have other locations, including one in the best city in the universe, in Chicago. True. I guess you could say Raygun brings us together. Raygun kind of brings everyone together. True again. From home goods and paper products to their signature apparel, Raygun is all about good vibes, great laughs, and kind of just not being a shitty person. Yup. And they regularly collaborate with charities and special causes on special runs of products, and 15 to 30% of their net profits go to a variety of nonprofit organizations every year. And they sponsor this really dope history podcast I love. Right? So don't be a shitty person. <laughs> Check them out at their stores across the Midwest or online at raygunsite.com. Use promo code SHARIALATER to save on your next order. Yeah, uh, 
future future married humans and people planning weddings, if you have a bridal party, uh, the greatest gift that you can give is letting them choose their own shoes. <laughs> I I'm a big fan of the just tell me a color as long as it's like not a weird, very specific color that I'm gonna have a hard time mm-hmm. sourcing. Yeah, big fan of that. Also, uh, because if it's a floor length dress, if I can wear flats, I do not need to get the dress altered. Basically, yeah. if I need to wear heels, I need to pay for extra length. <laughs> the real thing. <laughs> if you have, if I'm wearing a floor length dress and it needs to be the correct length to be wearing heels with it, I have to pay extra money for extra length of dress, only to then pay more money to have about 70% of that extra length hemmed off. So anytime somebody is like, you can wear flats and do whatever you want. I'm like, great, because then I don't have to pay for extra length. We were given a color scheme. I was given beige neutral or warm neutral. Didn't know what that meant. Got kind of a blush colored dress, which turned out very white looking, which feels super shitty to do at a wedding. And then when we got our individual pictures with the bride, it looked like Meg and I got married. And it was a beautiful wedding. I was going to say, it was a, we were make a beautiful couple, but that's neither here nor there. It's not about that. We're going not back about up me. to Kaido. <laughs> uh, but like I said, like the roads, it, roads everywhere weren't built for like wheeled vehicles necessarily, let alone like large motor vehicles that weigh a bajillion mm-hmm. pounds. On the Takaido road, wheeled vehicles in general, like the wheel was around, guys. We're in the, we're in the 1600s. <laughs> around, but wheeled vehicles, despite the width of the road, super rare on the, on the Takaido it was a pedestrian highway, so you were, you were, uh, you were, you were walking, you were on a horse, you were walking your horse like a pack horse, or you were in a cart, uh, you were in a palanquin, so a cart carried by bearers, which always immediately feels fancy. People of all wealth statuses were carried on the Takedo Road. Uh, it just was. It's more of it was a. It was your status. I mean, same as same as now. Pimp your ride. Your mm. your cart or whatnot uh, definitely indicated your status. Your ride showed off, showed yourself off because the lower class folks were on foot or were in very humble carts that were called kagos, and those these were only carried by like two porters. So they were very cramped. It's basically like you're in a box being carried, and it's like at that point, I feel like I would just rather walk. Uh, <laughs> Or you're literally on like a chair on a couple poles. Mm-hmm. Upper class folks traveled in roomy, roomy uh, norimonos, which were comfortably furnished and had closable sides to protect them against the weather. They were very fancy. And obviously the larger the vessel, the more people were necessary to carry it. Mm-hmm. The more people necessary to carry it, the longer the poles needed to be. Ooh. Oh, Natalie, I forgot to tell you, I got one of those for Christmas, too. Totally slipped my mind. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait until you travel to Chicago. Oh, God. Of, uh, of Norimono. Uh, <laughs> the, the length of your poles proclaimed <laughs> the uh, wealth and status of the passenger. So... Pole envy. Mm-hmm. Whether you needed, <laughs> whether you could be carried by just two people because you were basically like just on a chair on sticks, or whether you needed eight bearers to carry you. 
Also, if the occupant, I guess I read somewhere that if the occupant was like a prince of the royal family, the bearers would carry the poles in the palms of their hands, and then otherwise you were up on the shoulder. And I feel like, I don't know, I'm not good at physics. so I'd, I'd rather have it on my shoulder. That feels more secure, but I wonder if it was a smoother ride if it was in... Oh, yeah, I'm sure, but That's also a lot harder. For the bearers to carry, so yeah, yeah. Like, it's like... I'm fancy, so my people have to do this. Suffer? Yeah. yeah, that's pretty much, you just, that's history. I'm I'm fancy uh, and was born for no other reason other than where how I was born, and everyone else has to suffer before it because yeah. of it. That's Fun. literally 80% history. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so obviously, though, the, like, the Tokaido cuts through some mountainous regions, and in those cases, everyone, regardless of rank, had to use a smaller go little like um, vehicle if you will there were rules on this road lots of rules for travelers some with severe penalties but it seems like they weren't consistently enforced necessarily one that i bet was consistently enforced though was that women were forbidden to travel alone cheers they had to travel in the company of men but it doesn't sound like the road was dangerous um there's so there's uh man yeah was that like a, a protection thing or was that a modesty thing or was that a i think control yeah. thing i think like scare quotes around all of those like yeah um i think it was i think it was more of like a morality thing and like a gender yeah. thing because there were uh there were a couple of english men who who were some of the first travel westerners to travel on the road um and th they like wrote about the fact that there were very few dangers on the road. They weren't really like abused or ridiculed or whatever. And um, good road, good road. Well, and it's it's one of them is like that's probably owed to the fact that like Japan's local government system is very tightly regulated and imposed mm. like very rigorous discipline on the population. And also Japan was like a culture of people who really watch out for their neighbors. And mm -hmm. so if you stopped at one of the outpost towns. All of the streets were gated. Homes were like divided into like little clusters. So think of it as like a like a courtyard with like a bunch of houses in it. So you could kind of see all of your neighbors' doors. Mm -hmm. And each of these little clusters had gates. So and there was like a headman in charge of each little cluster who was in charge of maintaining order. And streets were closed at dusk. Soldiers were always on duty. If somebody saw something or somebody did something like an alarm, see something, like, say something, say something, and somebody always saw it. Uh, just yeah. because of the way that the towns were laid out. Well, it also sounds like th like this this was a, like a march, you know? This was a, a ceremonial. You got everybody going. You got the rich and famous and powerful. So, like, we're not going to fuck around. That was just every two years when everybody, like, when when the lords needed to make this. Pillow. Oh, so, so you're saying when oh, people I were just course. using the road yeah. willy-nilly, it was still very safe. Yeah, it was just a main thoroughfare. And like, but it was lots of like merchants on it all the time. But like in these, Got it. these towns, in these small towns and outposts, like there's lots of gates and stuff. So basically somebody said like, if a crime was committed, the alarm was raised and gates were shut immediately. And so you could very quickly and efficiently catch the wrongdoer before they like got out of town. Also, it kind of sounds like if they got out of town, then they'd be on this one road and therefore probably pretty easy to find. <laughs> yeah. Wonder where they are. Wonder what road they took out of this mountain town. <laughs> uh, but I mentioned the outposts. There 
were uh, the manors along the route were required to maintain the, uh, their places as as destinations it stops for like refreshment and rest for travelers. Mm. So they were government sanctioned post stations, uh, Shukuba, to use as essentially rest stops. They had porter stations, they had horse stables, they had lodging and food, they had other places you could visit while you were there, like temples and shrines. Um, and the original Takaido Road had 53 stations between Ido and Kyoto, 53 because of the 53, because of the 53 Buddhist saints that acolyte, uh, that a Buddhist acolyte visited to receive teachings in his quest for enlightenment. So it was a very, oh. very significant number for, especially for like travel. You had to have travel permits. There were almost no bridges. So if you like, if the road would just dead end into a river and you'd have to be ferried by a boat or carried by waterman porters, which that job sounds terrible. Heavy, but it, like heavy cargo wasn't really taken on the road. It was sent separately by sea. There were imperial, uh, if you had to send an imperial dispatch, this is why I said that there's always something happened on the road because the, the shogun and the lords are like, constantly sending runners with imperial dispatches back mm -hmm. and forth so if the weather was bad the, or if the uh, the that often meant that the water was bad and there was a section of the road that you literally had to be on a boat for 17 miles like there's a because because there just wasn't yeah just too many rivers like one after another mm -hmm. um, and so the most of the time, if there was a delay, it was because of the water travel. In Got ideal it. weather, the journey on foot could be made in about a week. Mm -hmm. um, in bad conditions, it took up to a month. And I mentioned the I mentioned the Englishman uh, who who trod this path. The the notable ones are in 1613 William Adams, who was an English navigator, and John Saris, who was a chief merchant on one of the first. English voyages to Japan. They were some of the first Westerners ever to travel on the road, and they literally, they literally like wrote back home. We're like, "Wow, this is a lot nicer than the roads back home. <laughs> That's a good road. Like, it's all good. Like I'm not like tripping. I'm not stepping in holes constantly. I'm not getting robbed constantly. I'm Should we go back home and make our roads good? Nah. <laughs> the they they also wrote about like the, the also the accommodations are great like having these government sanctioned outposts are amazing the feasts were amazing like we feast they said they feasted upon rice and fish with pickled herbs beans radishes and other roots and my favorite is that they one of them writes about an abundance of cheese it wasn't cheese it was tofu you silly European I was gonna say I don't think of Japan as being a big cheese no hub just a bunch of whiteies had never seen tofu and we're like <laughs> i love this 1600s 1400s uh yelp review yeah yeah <laughs> five stars good cheese great road <laughs> and the the slab that we slept on top notch um they did not however speaking of the discipline uh in in this local government uh, they did not, however, love the sight of the crucified remains of criminals, which, you know, lined the roads on the approach to each town. Oh, so damn. a bit of a damper on the festivities. Yeah. But uh, I just... You know what? Honestly, that's not new. Romans did it. Kind of everybody did it. Wasn't good. Not a fan of it. But, like, you've seen that before. Come on. But we're, but now we're, now it's the 1600s and we're very civilized in England. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. How's that plague going over there? You know, just ravaging everyone. Um, yeah, so I, so you can see, you can see the Takedo in a bunch of art and literature from the time. Obviously, there's uh, a novel that about a journey along the Takedo. It's called the Canterbury Tales. No, uh, it's 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 called the Shanks Mare. It's one of the most famous novels along about a journey on the Takedo. There are lots of artists who depicted the the different uh, outposts. Um, one one print designer uh famous in the time uh Hiroshig I didn't guys I'm so sorry I didn't look up pronunciations for this section because I was like and then I'll talk about art uh that's really all I wrote my notes is talk about art he depicted all of the stations in his work the 53 stations of the Takedo at this time there there was in the or sorry in the 19th century it was illegal to like have prints of uh celebrity actors and courtesans and uh um, entertainers and so there was a series of woodblock cuts that became super popular to just have in your home as sort of like a visual puzzle uh, and it was done by this same uh, artist and two other leading print designers of the of the 19th century that also showed it was called the 53 pairings along the Takedo Road and it paired each outpost with like another kind of famous visual for it so it was Wait, so it was illegal to have like have like a pic you can have like a poster of like your favorite courtesan on your wall or whatever so we couldn't have like uh what was the tiger like jtt poster that we ripped out of the tiger beats you can... tiger beats that's what it was uh so it was these uh the these woodcuts instead were like really popular things to have in your home because it was sort of like paired each station with an intriguing kind of cryptic design Ooh. Uh, of like dom of dominant figures against distant landscapes. They used uh, stories from Kabuki theater, poetry, famous tales, legends, landmarks, and local specialties to kind of like pair like as to show parallel to each of the 53 stations. I know of uh, first learned about the Takedo road from a beautiful work of art that is a very very pretty board game called the Takedo Road that came out in 2012 that I literally bought because I was like this game is beautiful and then it wound up to be a fun game it's uh in the game you are kind of racing your uh companion if you will against you're racing them to the other side but like it's not competitive it's just like you have to stop at X amount of stops, blah, blah, blah. You can't travel this far. It's it's a weird, like, co-op game where you're not cooperating. You're each doing your own thing parallel, and it's great. And I Oh, this is cool. I just pulled up a picture of it. It's gorgeous. Yeah. So you can still travel parts of the road today. Uh, it's not like the, whatchamacallit, the Camino de Santiago in Europe that is, like, made for pilf to be pilgrimaged upon most of the old road has been swallowed up by a modern highway that is known as the Takedo highway <laughs> but i'll post in the in the doobly-doo i po found like a whole itinerary with info about like different stretches of it that you can do um if somebody is interested in going to japan so most of the posts and inns are gone there's like one left and then like a lot of the religious sites remain and there's some castle ruins but it's, it was one of my sources as well, so it will be posted in the sources. 
Cass, we have to take an ad break. Fair enough. But we're a history podcast, so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts. Okay. Oh, tasty facts. Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1560. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. Fuck yeah, I, I do. I love a good road. You know, because there's always a story. It's always a journey. Um, we might have to just do a road episode. Just do some roads? I think that would be awesome. Did you also bring a road? I did not bring a road. But where are we and when are we, Natalie? When are we? Six days ago. Where are we? Los Angeles. Cass, that's not history. Just you wait. Six days ago at time of recording. <laughs> At time of recording, yes. So late, late not, not in the new year. Um, like, how are you telling the future right now, Cass? There's this great article um, on BBC News, uh, and I just, I just read the headline that said, "What I learned eating at eight thousand Chinese restaurants." My interest was piqued. Um, and this, uh, this man, David R. Chan. He's 72 years old, and he is he claims to have eaten at uh, nearly 8,000 Chinese restaurants across the United States. About His current count is 7,812. And I'm like, that sounds delicious. I saw and that then, article. I did not read it. It, it was phenomenal. It's a beautiful article. Go check it out. Um, and you're like, okay, like, cool hobby, bro. Why do we care? Uh, he grew up in... California. His grandparents immigrated to California um, from China's Guangdong province. Uh, even though his grandparents were Chinese, his parents were Chinese, he said he didn't really grow up eating Chinese food. He never really ate it. He didn't really like it. He didn't think the food was sophisticated, he says. Um, and he said when we would go to banquets, he would just eat soy sauce on rice. Like, he wasn't into it, didn't really care. In the 60s, there was this kind of restrictive quotas on Asian immigrants were lifted. So more, there was an influx of Asian immigrants to the United States. Also, there was this uh, famous moment, the rise of Chinese food in, in U.S. history. Um, it said it became democratized when... Richard Nixon ate a meal with the Chinese premier, Zhu Enlai. It was televised. He was eating with chopsticks. It was this kind of, you know, bringing together of different cultures. And people were like, what is this? Let's eat more of this. And so he said in the 60s, he was kind of more intrigued. He wanted to learn more about Chinese food, his heritage. The reason he said it was not really sophisticated was, and I thought this was interesting, when Chinese immigrants first came to the United States, it was in the 1800s, um, around the 1850s, a lot of them came to California for the gold rush. There was only 0.08% of the population in the 1900s was Chinese. 
they all came from one province and one town specifically. All of the first Chinese immigrants for a while. Yes. So it's not just like this was the first town that came over and then more people started. The only have the food really from one region, one town. Exactly. So they came from Taishan, which is in the Guangdong province, which is where his grandparents were from. And it was such a small population that there wasn't a lot of food. There wasn't a lot of options. There wasn't a lot of um, diversity. Also, like people who've been living in California, people who, you know, went west, uh, Americans that had been there for a lot longer. They're like, we don't want this food. We don't, you know, they thought very poorly of Chinese people. They're like, we, we, y'all are weird. We don't like you. We're not going to eat your food. And then with this, with the lifting of restrictions, so many people from different areas of China came to the United States. But also with so many people from Asia, people from China coming over, uh, having these restaurants pop up with different regions, different styles of food, different flavor profiles and preferences. When Americans started eating them, they're like, you know, the lily white tongues of, of white America at the time was like, I don't really, what is this? Little baby palettes. Our little baby palettes. So everything had to be kind of like dumbed down. Like you go anywhere and you can find like a quote unquote Chinese restaurant and you get the staples, which is not real Chinese food. It's not you know, it's it's all become, you know, orange chicken is going to be the same at every kind of little, you know, Panda Express, even to smaller Chinese restaurants, because that's all Americans don't understand the diversity of Chinese food, of Asian food. Back to Taishan. So this was, uh, this is on the southeast coast of China. It's a very small, uh, it's called a prefecture level city so it's it's not like a town it's kind of like a county but it's it's still pretty small in 1499 it was kind of established as Qining County and then by the 19th century immigrants from northern China came down and they started using it as like a seafaring port uh there was the sea ban um which the empire you know, was banning trade. They were banning a lot of ways in order to kind of consolidate and keep tabs on trade and all of that stuff, which then started like a full-blown war in the 1850s. Uh, the Opium War in 1842 ended, uh, which brought more trade to China with all this kind of inter- Chinese turmoil, these wars going on, seafaring bans, and then an influx of trade. That's kind of what pushed a lot of people to the United States, plus a promise of gold, gold rush, everything. But yeah, so it, it to me, I was like, how was it that they only came from this one place? And it was like, for a long time. Again, it was not a few people from Taishan went, and then ev everyone was kind of hearing about it. It was just this one Port, this one area so David Archan he when he was in college in the 60s he was like I want to learn more about my heritage I want to learn more about food where it came from how it developed how it's different 
uh, in one part of the country to the other. Um, his interest in history led him to eat food and learn more about his history, about Chinese American history, and what different Chinese people experience across the country. Eat your history, ladies and gentlemen. Who eat your history? Heck yeah. So he said the the best place to find the most varied, authentic Chinese food is in the San Gabriel Valley in LA. It's a Chinese immigrant enclave. Uh, for dim sum though, San Francisco is the best, best place to go. He said he has had, quote, unexpectedly good chow mein in Clarksdale, Mississippi, which also has a historic community of Chinese Americans dating back 200 years. Um, so the beginning of the colonization of the United States. And then he said one of his most disappointing meals was in Fargo, North Dakota. The fried rice was like boiled rice and someone poured soy sauce onto it. But the town is also far from any sizable Chinese communities. So probably not going to be super authentic. So yeah, so a little bit about kind of the diversity of the cuisine. He didn't know how varied it was. Again, his his parents, his grand or his grandparents were from Taishan. Um, a lot of the food, which is in which is Cantonese, it's in the Canton province. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the first food that came over was Cantonese. It's known for bite-sized dim sum dishes, uses light seasoning so that the natural flavors of ingredients can sing. Fujianese cu cuisine features. Seafood served in broth because a province lies on the coast. Sichuanese food is famous for dishes heavy, dishes heavy on numbing peppercorns and fiery chilies. So he started learning more about the different regions within China, the different demographics and flavor profiles in China, how that then translated to where you're located in the United States and how those flavor profiles. I just thought this was fascinating. And he's like, he's like, I'm not a food critic. I'm a tax lawyer. Um, <laughs> and he, he, he like says he, he has a, a Instagram and a blog. Um, go check it out. It is David R. Chan. It's like the first one that pops up. Chan D A V K L um, is his, is his handle and he he posts pictures he talks about it and he'll say i'm not a food critic like this is just a hobby of his he's retired now he wants to keep uh do, doing this going to different places um and it's funny <laughs> uh he says he collects them um but the last line of this article is great one of his followers who remains skeptical about his expertise his wife, who is from China and is bemused that people ask Mr. Chan about Chinese food in their house, she is the cook. <laughs> I love that so much. But what a what a great, like, he's second generation Chinese. He doesn't feel connected to his, his heritage. Also, with the history of the United States and uh, Chinese immigrants' bans, the way we've treated Asian immigrants to begin with, you know, one of the, the best ways to colonize is to cut ties from people's heritage, language, traditions, food. Um, so it was so cool that his way to connect was to start with food um, and to learn about the diversity there. And he said he did it just to learn more about China, to connect to his heritage. 
So I thought that was just a really sweet, a sweet story. Also a great way to dive into history, you know? Pick something you like, find the history about it. Follow your stomach. Ugh, always. I just really love the idea of uh, collecting meals. Yeah. Collecting experiences of food. Yeah. And not and considering that, because that's a collection. Like that mm -hmm. is a collection. We always think of collections as physical possessions. Stamps, coins. Yeah. And it's like, and it seems cheesy to be like, you could collect experiences and memories. Yeah. But some of, I feel like the best things on the internet are, are seemingly silly. And sometimes they're comedians doing it. There's, uh, the amazing Paula Skaggs, if you are familiar, bless her heart. She has an Instagram, a separate Instagram account where she reviews lean cuisines, uh, but very earnestly uh, reviews these lean cuisines. And so it's it's one of the one of the joys of the Internet is that you can have these kind of you can digitize a collection of experiences for other people to enjoy and learn from. Whether... Well, and something seemingly silly yeah. or or like not something you would think of to invest time in. And something you, you can... can enjoy and that you can like share with other people versus just like, I found a stamp. Sorry. Yeah. I don't mean to make fun of stamp collector. It's, I, I actually love stamps. But yes, hobbies and collections seem to be kind of like hoity-toity. Like people can dismiss things because it's not it's not cool or it's whatever. And that's what hobbies are. They're things that you like. They're ways to deep dive into something. Um, not that Chinese food collecting is silly at all, but follow your dream and follow what makes you happy and find a way to connect that to a community or to yourself or something bigger. I hope that he, as much as he tries and reviews actual Chinese dishes. I hope that he occasionally purposefully chooses something on the menu that he knows is just there for the for the Americans and that is like yeah. remotely authentic. Yeah. Remotely Chinese food at all. I yeah. the gaggle of that where it's like, and then this is there for white America. <laughs> uh so zoom zoom yourself to on a journey down the Takedo Road, and then zoom zoom yourself to uh, your local Chinese food restaurant, and and see see if David ever reviewed it. See what you. Can Ooh, that's fun. I mean, we know he's been to Fargo, and we know he's been to Clarksville, Mississippi. So, uh, go to his Instagram and see if you can see if you can figure out if he's if he has been to a Chinese food restaurant by you and what he thought of it, and then go have your own experience and collect that into your heart and your tummy. Maybe we'll get him on the pod. <gasps> I would. Oh die. my god! For... Right, well, new uh, New Year's resolution. Uh... Spam David Archan. <laughs> Social media spamming people who we like has been good to us so far. <laughs> Thank you for filling uh, my head and my tummy with such a beautiful story. A delicious. Thank you as well. Thank you for all the data and the roads. God, I love a road. Is that weird to say? I love a data. There's so much history. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again in the new year. We can't wait to bring you more episodes. It's 2022. What is time? What is happening? Who are we? 
what are we doing? Until next time. Share you later. Broadsheet Radio.